Hello, Parkview. How's it going? It's good to see you all here. If you're visiting with us, it's good to see you here. I want to welcome our friends watching on, online on devices. Listen, what other church can redeem the accordion? Tell me now. How about that? It's not just for polka anymore. That's right. Well, I'm so excited to be here as a part of this series. Um, you may, if you don't know me, um, I, my wife and I, we didn't grow up in this area. My wife grew up in Pittsburgh. I grew up in uh, southern West Virginia, and we kind of did this to Ohio and then went west, young man. And so we haven't always been Illinois people, but when we finally got out here, um, we decided, you know, we live within three hours of, we lived within three hours of like the greatest city in the world. And so we decided we've got to make use of this. So we started doing these little trips, these little weekend trips up to the city of Chicago, which was really exciting. So our first one, we decided, listen, we've got to do something really legitimate, authentic Chicago when we get there. So we've got to figure out what that is. What's the most legitimate thing we could do? And so when we got there, we decided, well, it's probably going to have to do with food. Uh, because that's, we've, we've got to eat. And so we decided we want to eat at like a really original place. And so we started driving and we found this place and we were like, oh, this will be great. That place was called Big Bowl, <laughs> which some of you know is neither original nor authentic and is actually a chain. But we didn't know that at the time. So we were, you know, blissfully ignorant. So we went in and if you've never been there, you, you get all these raw materials together and you hand them to a chef and they put it in a wok and they stir fry it for you. So we got our stuff, we put it together, we got our food, and we sat down. And as we sat down, we started looking around, and there were all kinds of different people. There were people speaking in different languages, people dressed in ways that we really hadn't seen in a, in a long time. And we didn't always understand the conversations that were going on around us. We heard different accents, different clothing. And as I sat there, I became kind of overwhelmed by the, the idea of, what do any of us have in common in this room right now? And then it dawned on me as I'm sitting over my giant bowl of stir-fried whatever, and I said, oh yeah, everybody in this room has got to eat. There's not a person in this room that can survive without eating. So meals, food, can become a very sacred thing because it's the one thing that unites all of humanity together. So if God is going to tell his people that he loves them, and not just in the like ethereal Hallmark card kind of way, but in a solid, tangible kind of way, doesn't it make sense that he would do it with food? Now, I love food, so this whole thing is going to be great, and we're right around lunch, so this is going to be torture for you, but I'm excited about it. I love food, and I love the fact that God understands that when we need to know that we are loved, we need something tangible, something touchable, something tasteable. And so... If you read enough of the Bible, what you figure out is if God is going to change the world and tell his people that he loves them, he's probably going to do it over dinner. And the story we're going to talk about today says just that. Back in the book of Exodus, it's the second book of the Bible, a point in history where the people of God, Israel, the Hebrews, were in slavery. And these are people who are descendants of a promised group of men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had made specific promises to these guys, and also to a guy named Joseph and his brothers. And so they had populated Egypt, and now they were living under slavery, under a very insecure king. Not that politicians ever get insecure, but this guy did. This guy got so insecure, as a matter of fact, that he started killing off every firstborn Hebrew baby boy to make sure that they never had more Hebrews than Egyptians to make sure they controlled this group of people. And so the Hebrews were under slavery and they began to cry out to God. This is a horrible situation. And God says, I hear your cries and I'm going to rescue you. And strangely enough, I'm going to do it over a midnight snack. 
And so he says, all of you, all of you families of Hebrews, get a goat or a lamb. And here's what I want you to do with it. It says, all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them, their goat or their lamb, at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over a fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. And this is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. This is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, and the blood will be a sign for you on your houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is hard for us to hear because it's God acting very severely. But sometimes when you have to break someone out of slavery, it takes a severe act. And remember, this is what the Pharaoh, the king, did to them. And so God is saying, to get you out of where you are, I'm going to have to take a very decisive move. So what I want you to do is I want you to eat this meal and be ready. And when the time comes, I'm going to pull you all out. And that's exactly what happened. God rescued an entire nation. In one night, they ate the meal, and then they knew it was time to go. And so they went, and they left slavery, and they escaped. And so God said, from now on, every year I want you to sit down to this meal and I want you to remember who you are. I want you to eat the lamb, I want you to eat the bread and the bitter herbs and all of that, but I'm also going to add four cups of wine at the end because it's just a good idea. Because I want you to celebrate. You're free now. So the end now is a celebration that you are a free people. Every time you eat this meal, remember who you are. And so all of this history and this most incredible moment is now captured in a single dinner that Jewish people celebrate once a year. It's amazing, isn't it? I actually got to experience this. My wife and daughter and I went to a, a Passover, what's called a Passover Seder. That's what they're talking about here is this meal that remembers what happened. So we really wanted to do it legitimately. So we went to Homewood to a synagogue there and celebrated Passover. And now listen, when we walked in, there were two things that were very clear. Number one, I was the only, we were the only Gentiles in the room. That's for sure. We were the only non-Jewish people in the place. The other thing we knew is we were the only people under 45 in the place. So we got to this room and there's this huge long table and as I'm walking in, they hand me this program and they said, here you go. And the page is marked with a post-it note and they said, congratulations, you have the first reading tonight. <laughs> so not only are we the only Gentiles, not only are we the only people under 45, I'm now going to read the first part of their worship service. And so I read my part and we went through all the steps and there was laughing, and there was joy and there was food. Then they pulled out the Polish brandy and it got a little crazy. But anyway, so we get to sit down and we're talking with the people around us and they say, so what do you do for a living? And I thought of every good lie. I could, I'm a writer or I'm a counselor. Or I'm a spiritual guide. And finally, I just said, oh, I'm, a, I'm a Christian pastor. And I just waited for all the questions and curiosities. They only had one real question. Why do you guys eat so much ham? <laughs> like, because it's good. I don't know. It's good. It, I don't know. But as we sat there and talked to them, they began to work their way backwards. They began to tell us stories of their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their great-grandparents' grandparents. And some of them could go all the way back to Auschwitz, to Dachau, 
to Nazi internment camps. Some of them could go beyond that, trace their lineage all the way back to Poland or to Israel, and they could talk about Passover tables down through generations. And then they talked about their children. And they said, I hope that my son or daughter at college or in the new city or the new state where they live, I hope they can find a table to root themselves around. Because for them... All of life really boiled down to knowing who you are, all really boiled down to bread and wine. This meal that taught you who you are, this meal that rooted you in your value and your worth in the world came down to bread and wine. I think the Passover meal is fascinating because there are three things that God tells people through it, and I want us to focus on those today. And here they are one at a time. Number one is you are redeemed. Number two is you are meant to live And number three is you are blessed by God. This meal communicates these huge ideas to the people of God. You are welcome, you are redeemed, you are meant to live, and you are blessed by God. So I want to take those one at a time and just talk about them a little bit today. When it talks about being redeemed, when they did Passover, only Jewish people could sit down at Passover. But as you go into Jesus' lifetime, meals take on this whole new spectrum because in Jesus' lifetime, you only ate meals with people that you thought had value. You only ate meals with people you thought were redeemed or redeemable. And yet Jesus comes into the world and begins to eat with people that nobody else wants to eat with. Because you would get the reputation of the kind of person who eats with unredeemed or unredeemable people. And so Jesus begins to sit at tables where he's not supposed to be, with tax collectors, with sinners, with prostitutes. And not just like people who play tax collectors and prostitutes on TV, actual, real, gritty, broken people. So much so that, listen, the Pharisees came to his disciples and said this. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Passover said, If God can bring us all out of Egypt, what else can he do? He can make us into one people. And Jesus sits down with tax collectors and sinners. It says, Maybe this table is bigger than we thought. Maybe it's not just for the redeemed people. Maybe it's also for those who are not yet redeemed or those people we don't believe are redeemable. Maybe there's a space for everyone at the table. There's a great Russian artist, his last name was Rublev, and he created this icon, this picture. And it's a picture of God the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit sitting down to dinner. It's an amazingly beautiful picture, but as he tells the story of the icon, he says, what you want to notice is the front of the table, because the front of the table is open. There is a space at the table with God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And he says what that means is that in Jesus, everyone is now welcome to the table. Whether you believe they're unredeemed or unredeemable, it doesn't matter. There is an open spot here at the table for every single person. This is powerful stuff. Because if the table is open, that means if you came in today and you haven't been to church for years or your relationship with God has been fractured, there's this picture in this image that says, even if you haven't been with him, even if you feel like you're far from him, the table is open. There's a place for you. There's a place for you to come and be a part of this world that God has made. And this invitation is powerful because of what we're beginning to learn about tables. Leonard Sweet is a writer and he captures a bunch of statistics about tables, specifically about the power they have on our families. 
And there's some amazing things he found out. First of all, he finds out the number one factor for parents raising kids who are drug-free, healthy, and intelligent, kind human beings are frequent family dinners. Time around the table changes you. The number one shaper of vocabulary in younger children, even more than any other family event, including play, is frequent family dinners. The number one predictors of future academic success among elementary age children are frequent family dinners. Are you picking up a theme here? One of the best safeguards against childhood obesity, strangely, is frequent family dinners. The best prescription to prevent eating disorders among adolescent girls are frequent family dinners that exude a positive atmosphere. And this one struck me deeply. The variable most associated with lower incidence of depressive and suicidal thoughts among 11 to 18-year-olds is frequent family dinners. Why? Because at the table, when we are welcomed, when we share it together, at the table is where we figure out that we are valued. There is someone else making sure there's enough potatoes for us when they pass the plate. There's someone else looking out for us. We learn the simple graces of please and thank you. Sometimes that's the most spiritual step we can take is just to get some better manners. And we learn that at the table. We learn that we are loved. We learn that we are supported. So when this icon is painted and the front of the table is open, what God is saying is I am welcoming you to teach you that you are redeemable. You have value. This table says, when you come to share in the bread and the wine, know that you are welcome and you are expected and you are loved. I had a friend named Sarah, and she was part of a church we were working with. And one night we were all sitting around the table sharing a meal together. And uh, Sarah was very plain, kind of reserved, very, very uh, quiet girl. And that was weird because I was about to try and introduce her to David, who was in the middle of serving an 11-year prison term for second-degree murder. David was a friend that I'd been hooked up with through our church, and he asked me once as we sat around a cafeteria table in a prison waiting room, he said, is there a, a, a woman on the outside that I could write to? Because I don't talk to many women in here, and I want to make sure I still know what to say when the day comes and I'm, I get out. I'd still like to get married. I'd still like to have a family. Is there someone I could write with? And Sarah was the one that came to mind. And so I gently said, hey, Sarah, so there's this friend of mine named David, and he's looking for a pen pal. Why does he need a pen pal? Well, he's in prison. Um, and she begrudgingly said, sure. And it was amazing for me to watch over time. She like, started to grow her hair out a little bit. And she started to wear a little bit more makeup and talk a little bit more. And then the day she had a Harley Davidson t-shirt on, it was like, Whoa, um, something has changed here. The day she got her first tattoo, I'm like, whoa, hello. And the amazing moment that came for me was the moment I got to marry Sarah and David in his house under house arrest the first day he was home from prison. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. But the most amazing thing about that is you had this guy who seemed unredeemable because of his crime and you had this woman who was alone and quiet and needed someone to bring her out of her shell and now today they sit together at a table and say, pass the salt, we are redeemed. Together. They welcome each other. They make a space for each other regardless of their stories at the table and that is what God is doing for each one of us. He's saying to us what Paul says in Ephesians, for you, once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. 
So whether you feel like you are redeemed or redeemable, there is no prison, there's no slavery, there's no darkness that God cannot say, come out of that and come to the table because I have bread and wine for you. Second thing we learned is that we're meant to live, and I never caught this about the Passover story, but I wanted to share this with you as far as it concerns the lamb. And it says this, it says, that same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, it's a good idea, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs, ew, Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. Now listen to what he says here. Don't eat it raw, because that's just a bad idea. But also don't, don't boil it. What I want you to do is to roast it. Put this image in your head. Lamb roasting over olive wood. Can you smell it? This is divine barbecue we're talking about here. This is God commanding them to grill. (laughs) So those of you men in here who are grillers, this is your kind of God. You know, because that smell gets in your hair and it gets all over you and everywhere you go, like you go to the gym the next day and you're running, you start sweating, you're like, why does it smell like Cracker Barrel in here? Oh, (laughs) it's me. God says, listen, this is not some sort of functional religious meal. This is a moment I want you to smell and taste and touch and savor because God's table is not just a place where we serve microwave stuff. It's a place where we learn that God is not just creator. He is artist. He creates tastes and textures that are beautiful and moving. God's table is anything but boring. It is life-giving. God did not intend for us just to survive. He created a table and a Passover and texture and taste that says, I've created a world that is beautiful for you to experience. Jesus says in his ministry, I have come to give that they may have life and life to the full. And a lot of times people hear that and they go, well, that's great because one day we're going to die and we'll have life and life to the full. It's not true. Jesus says this in present tense language. And I wonder if he's got in his head this image of roasting lamb. This beautiful smell, this beautiful taste, this beautiful texture. This is all about us smelling roasting lamb above the stench of the life we typically live. God has not opened the table so that we might come and go through rituals. He has come so that we might come to know that there is a beauty and a grace and a goodness in the things that he made, that he is not just creator. He's not just kicking widgets out of a factory somewhere. He is also the artist. In Genesis, we often take this just about science, but in Genesis, it says this, God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with the seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. Everything that tastes good is a result of God's creative and artistic finger touching it. Shaping it, every grape, every grain, every texture, every taste, every smell is because of a redemptive God saying, I've intended for you to live and not just to survive, but to thrive. And of course, they're to be enjoyed in moderation. I totally get this. But when we enjoy them in moderation, we have to take a step back and realize the God that's behind it all. I mean, come on, just listen. Isn't that divine? Isn't that beautiful? That opens the door when the wine is poured, when the bread is broken. It says, these things are now open to you. 
When they sit at the table with the roasted lamb and they smell it and they see it and they taste it, they say, this God is very different. This is a God who cares about taste and touch. As a matter of fact, even when they were in dark places, David is stuck in the desert, lost, far from God. At least he feels that way. Listen to how he says and describes coming back to God. He says, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. David does not have in mind a God who gives him hot pockets. Hot pockets. He has in mind a God who enjoys sirloin and great bread and beautiful smells and says, this is the kind of food God is to you the richest, the most beautiful, the deepest. God is not just concerned with spiritual things. He's concerned with the quality of tasteable, touchable things. And so when we come to the table, when we see the bread and the wine, we are reminded that God intends for us to live, not just survive, but to thrive. And when we know that, it leads us to the third part of the Passover meal, which is this. We are all blessed by God. And when you learn about blessing, you begin to learn about gratitude. We moved uh, in 2000 to Springfield, Illinois. And so I'm preparing to load a 26-foot U-Haul trailer truck with a car trailer on the back of it. And so I've invited some of my buddies to come over and help me to move. And everybody, if you've moved, you've had this experience. Uh, They showed up in the evening. And let's just say they'd been experimenting with some liquids all day long, some liquid refreshment. And they were all incredibly, uh, they were having a great time and their sense of humor had increased and some of them have gotten really quiet, which was kind of strange. And so, so my four inebriated buddies show up to help me move every worldly possession we have. So we begin to load the truck and of course I'm going behind them like moving, don't put that, that's going to break, never mind, just I'll do it. So we begin to move things around and we get everything loaded. Now as we're loading the truck, icy rain begins to fall on central Ohio and it keeps falling. So we're working really hard to get everything in there. We get everything loaded. They shut the door. And then these guys, unbeknownst to me, wheeled the trailer up and hooked up the ball hitch to the trailer. These four inebriated men hooked this thing up. And so I went inside for a little bit. And then my friend and I came out and we noticed something had happened after the guys left. The truck has actually slid sideways into the grass of our yard. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to pull a 26-foot U-Haul out of wet grass, but it basically becomes like a big shovel. And it dug itself into the mud. So we call a tow truck. The tow truck pulls the truck out, puts it back on the pavement. We're really excited. Everything's going to be fine. We go to sleep. Sleep for like three hours. We get up, and it's 56 and rainy now in central Ohio. So we're like, let's just get in the truck and get out of here. So I go to pull my car up on the trailer, and it goes up, and then the trailer does like this. Because, again, I had four inebriated guys hook up this trailer. So they didn't do it right. So it began to... So I fixed that, I got in the car, now after fixing it, I'm soaking wet, and I'm not happy, and I haven't had enough sleep. So I get in the car, we start driving. We drive all the way across Ohio, we start to go all the way across Indiana, we cross the border to Illinois, and it begins to snow. And not just any snow, like an inch a half hour snow, and the temperature drops like 25 degrees, and I'm thinking, this is the apocalypse, this is the end of the world, and I'm going to die in a U-Haul truck somewhere outside of Champaign. So we finally get to Springfield. I am soaked to the bone because I've never dried, because how would you? And I get out of the car, and I'm like, we just have to meet our family, and I can get the car off the trailer, and we can go. It's going to be fine. So I, I pull in. I trudge through the snow. I take my key, and I go to stick it in the lock of the car, and it 
won't because the rain in Ohio had seeped into the locks and somewhere in Champaign it had frozen solid. So my father-in-law are sitting in the front seat of his car, I can't make this up, with a little butane torch heating up the key to jam it in the lock. And so we keep jamming, jamming, jamming until finally we get it unlocked, pull it off the trailer, I get to their house, change my clothes, get warm, get dry. And then we sit down to the table. And I don't remember what kind of takeout pizza we had. Doesn't, it doesn't matter. I don't remember what we drank. I don't remember if there was chocolate after, which there probably was, knowing me. There was some sort of dessert afterwards. All I know is I was the most grateful human being on the face of the planet that night. Grateful that the truck wasn't still in a hole. Grateful that we had made it with all of our possessions all the way across the country. You see, when you come to this table and you realize that God has said you are loved and valued and redeemed, that you were meant to live, the only response we have when we sit down to the bread and wine that God has presented us is gratitude. Every time Jesus says, give thanks in the Gospels, he's referring to food. He's saying, when you sit down, you need to realize the great privilege you have because there are people in this world without tables. And some of us have multiple tables. And it is about time that we realized how grateful we are and to pass that fortune on to others. A 2013 study said that 17.9 million households suffer from food insecurity, meaning they don't know where they're going to get their next meal. That's 800 million people. And when we sit down to bread and wine, when we sit down to our tables, when we sit down to what God has given us, it should strike us at that moment that it would be the utmost of ignorance for us not to think of those who don't have a table or who are separated from others, who are alone and who could use some time together with others. So we are redeemed. We are called to live. We are made to live. And we are blessed by God. That's what the Passover meal teaches us. So great, so great history lesson. Thanks for talking about Exodus. That doesn't have anything to do with us, does it? Well, of course it does. Because you see, Jesus celebrated Passover. And he sat down with his 12 disciples. And they didn't sit down. What they did was they reclined. And this is what it looked like. They didn't sit at chairs. They leaned on their elbow and leaned against the table. It combines eating and laying down. How cool of an idea is that? And that's the way that free people ate, not slaves. Slaves were not allowed to recline at the table. Only free people, only redeemed people, only valuable people could recline at the table in this way. So Jesus and his disciples sit down and they begin to have the Pesach meal, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But in the middle, Jesus changes things and he changes things in a very important way. He takes the bread and it says, while they were eating, he took a loaf of bread. And after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. What Jesus does is he takes one of the key elements from the Passover meal and says, this is changing. In the very presence of you 12 men, this is changing. It's no longer about haste. It's no longer about God needing to kill Egyptians to save his people. He will kill one man for all of you. So whether you come broken, whether you come lost, whether you feel like you are unredeemed today, God offers you this bread and says, my son's body has been broken to set you free from slavery. No addiction, 
No darkness and no past story can hold you back from me anymore. Take the bread, take the body. Know you are redeemed and redeemable. This isn't just a side. You know, you go to a restaurant, they give you a basket of bread, and it's kind of like, well, that's really nice, free food. This, for those people in that time, was not a side. Bread was often used as, an, as a utensil by the poor. So if they had food, they scooped it with a crust of bread. So if they didn't have bread, they didn't eat. This is a significant symbol that God is using to say, you are valuable, you are redeemed, come and take freely that which you can't take for yourself. Welcome to the table. And then in the same way, he takes that cup of wine. And this is an amazing, amazing moment. He takes the cup of wine and he took the cup and after giving it, giving thanks, he gave it to them and all of them drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He takes one cup and he fills it just like they would do at the end of the Passover meal. And they say a blessing over it. It says, blessed art thou God who gives us the fruit of the vine. And they pass this cup around and Jesus says, you once thought this blood kept you safe, which is true, but now this blood erases is the guilt of what you have done. This blood cleanses you from sin. It sets you free from your past and you might be a new kind of together. When he says covenant, he says, listen, there are no only children in the kingdom of God. You are all together and half the reason you and I have lost our ability to deal with real life is we've forgotten the power of together. And Jesus says, take this cup and when you drink it, know that you are not alone. The ground is level. Nothing humbles you like eating a meal together and sharing this cup. So when you drink this, know you are not alone. You are together. And that's why for generations of Christians, every time they did this meal, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, they would say, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Remember the bread that's broken. Remember the blood that is shed because it has changed your world forever. So I know some of you have come and you don't feel like you're redeemed or redeemable. I don't have much of anything else of worth to offer you but bread and wine. Jesus says, if you feel like you're unredeemed, if you feel like you're unredeemable, come to the table. Let me show you the power of simple things. Maybe you feel like God is extremely boring and he's given us a bunch of drab rituals and routines and that's how we make him happy. If that's what you believe, then God says, come and taste the texture of the bread. Come and taste the unique notes of the wine. Now, we don't do wine here. We do Costco grape juice, so just so we're clear. But taste it. Know that I'm a creative God who made this. It tastes this way because I wanted it to. It's not an accident. If you believe that I'm a drab and boring God, then come to my table and see what it tastes like to be redeemed and to live fully and gratefully. Maybe you not only don't feel like you've been blessed, you feel like maybe God has cursed you. Maybe because of the events of your life, God has it out for you. Well, if that's true, then the psalmist says this to you today, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. If any of those describe you, can I just say there is a table prepared for you today. You are welcome. You are invited to come. We need together because, as we know as a nation, a lot of times there are things we can't handle on our own. A couple weeks ago, we had one such moment like this where five servicemen were killed in a shooting in Chattanooga, Tennessee. 
And as a result of that, in that community of Chattanooga, they tried to find a way to deal with the grief of what they were experiencing. And so they invited everyone to a Baptist church one night, regardless of faith, regardless of background. So there were Baptists and Jews and Christians and people with no faith and people who were, who were agnostic, who didn't know if they believed in anything. And they all came together and they all talked about the tragedy. They all talked about how they felt. They all talked about what it was like to mourn together. And then one moment in that service, an amazing thing happened. They began to stand up. They stood up and they began to put their arms around each other. And this is the picture that emerged. They linked arms with each other and they stood together and they mourned together and they prayed together. And I think this is a beautiful picture of what God's table is meant to look like. It doesn't mean that all those people are supposed to come. It just means that this is the kind of place where that kind of together is supposed to happen. Where the ground is leveled and we all mourn and we all suffer and we all rejoice and we all do it with bread and wine. So if you need together today, if you need to know that you are a part of something bigger, if you need someone to mourn with, Jesus says, my table is enormous. Come. There's a place card and a seat and a napkin just for you. We're actually going to transition and go into communion right now because I think it's important for us to practice what it is that we're hearing about. Now, in a minute, people are going to pass you a tray so let's just imagine now that we've all sort of settled around this bigger table. Somebody's going to pass you a tray, and it's going to be the person to either the left or the right of you. And it's going to be a person maybe you know. It might be a person you don't know. Maybe it's a person that's a part of your family, and therefore you are awkward with them. <laughs> maybe it's somebody that, as soon as you sat down, you looked at them, and you made some assessments of them based on what they're wearing, or how they smell, or that they've been live tweeting the entire sermon or they've been on their phone the whole time. Whatever it might be, that person is at the table beside you. Whether you believe they belong there or not. One of the great things about communion is if we do it right, somebody should be offended because everybody belongs. So when that person passes you the tray, sometimes we do this and we just do it in passing. When that person passes you the tray, look them in the eye. They are your family. They are your fellow redeemed, meant to live, blessed by God, brother, sister, mother, father, uncle, cousin. Make them second cousins if you feel like it's more comfortable to you. <laughs> so when they pass the tray to you, take it from them and know that you are all on the same level. We are all in need of redemption. There are two cups, one inside the other, bread in the bottom, juice in the top. Take them and hold them. We'll all take communion together. You don't have to be a member or a part of Parkview to take communion with us. If you're a believer in Jesus or you want to take a next step towards him, you want to come to the table. Then we extend that invitation to you. It's not our table, it's his. And he has the right to invite whoever he wants. So I welcome you to take that step with us today. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for the bread and wine. Thank you for the fact that your son was broken as a new kind of Passover. A new kind of redemption came through you and by you through very simple things, through bread and through wine. And so now we celebrate that. We do this today in remembrance of you to know that we are redeemed, that we are meant to live, and we are blessed. Bless us now as we think on you, as we hold these elements together. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.